1 Thessalonians 2.17 through 3.13. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. And we, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent him to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. All right. How's everybody doing? Good. Good? If I look a little cultured, it's because the Mejias shared their tickets and I went and saw Hamilton Friday night. <laughs> to balance myself off, last night I went and went, went and watched Supercross. <laughs> so I feel pretty balanced right now. Motorcycles and theater. <laughs> you put those together and that's like a perfect moment for me right there. But anyway... Hope all you're well. If you've got your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be starting in chapter 2, verse 17. So if you got, you can open it up. Uh, let me just say to those of you that um, maybe you're new here, never been here before, just first of all, we're really glad you're here. Um, this, is our, this is our church family, like Charles said. This is the people that know, love, and follow Jesus. And our heart is, is that either through how you interact with us today as a family, uh, the words that obviously get said from God's word today, the music that was sung, our heart is that you would encounter Jesus Christ. That's our heart. We truly do want you to encounter Jesus. And so as we go through God's word today, as we look at different things, just know at the back of it, um, we're, we are really glad you're here. Um, I hope you're a guest. But at the end of the day, uh, we do want you to know Jesus. So in, here's what we've been doing. Over the last few weeks, we've been wrestling with this idea of boldness. Now, boldness is something that has to be defined because like I talked about and like Christian talked about, the biblical understanding of boldness is not the same as boldness as we understand it within our culture. It's very important that we not mix those two up. 
Now, boldness that he's talking about, that Christian laid out for us, and that I tried to reemphasize last week, is that this boldness for Paul, he says, and he equated it to looking like a father or looking like a mother, a boldness that is maybe different than our understanding of maybe a a, a certain political leader, maybe somebody that's in the military. You know, we we oftentimes equate power and strength and, and fortitude and courage in that kind of way as boldness. But let me just say this biblically, that is not necessarily true true. Now for us, what we tried to do then is we tried to lay out this idea then, and we laid out a definition of what boldness is. So let me kind of throw that one up there if I can get my thing to work here. And this is what we said last week. Boldness is spirit-inspired hope, and we we already said what hope is, is hope is this this wonderful, confident expectation in God's faithfulness. In other words, I'm not going to trust in anything else. I'm going to trust in God's faithfulness and his alone. And it's connected to this idea that the good that God has for us, that he's promised for us, is any good that we could ever provide for ourselves. God's good is better. So in other words, he's saying this, it is spirit-inspired, it's going to come from the Holy Spirit, it's this hope that I've talked about that fuels courage. There's no doubt within it, there's this concept that we have to understand of boldness, that there is a courage to it, but here's where it kind of gets weird. It's rightly tempered by weakness? And we laid out this idea of this kind of what seems like an antinomy, two things that are true, but they don't appear to be. But I would just say this, what, what it is when we say weakness is this, this utter acknowledgement of him in our unabil- inability, but God's ability to do all things. When Jesus in John 15 said, apart from me, you can do nothing, he meant it. So therefore, we don't have to try to pump ourselves up, like I said last week, like a halftime talk, you know, and the coach hitting helmets, you know, coming out of here on a Sunday morning. What we need to do is we need to put Jesus Christ in front of you, the faithfulness of the God that we serve, the reality of the hope that we have in him, and our absolute inability. And I believe you begin to understand that. You will become some of the most confident people, but most importantly, you will become biblically bold. That's what we were after. We wanted to be a church that had boldness. And I would even say this, the entire book of Acts in many ways is a testament to the boldness of Paul, right? So when you look down in like Acts 28, 30, Paul lived in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all what? Boldness. It was just a mark of his life. It wasn't a halftime talk thing. It wasn't him trying to pump himself up. It came from a deep position, as we saw last week, of being connected to hope and also into weakness. When those two collided together, he became this bold individual in spite of his circumstances that allowed him to speak truth into the world in which he lived with grace. But when you look at it, one of the things that we talked up last week that I told you I was going to come to this week is what do we do then with him and Silas, or him and Timothy sneaking away at, in the middle of the night to get out of, out of Thessalonica? That's kind of how you read this. How in the world was that bold? I mean, I can imagine a lot of people as Christians thinking, well, I wasn't bold. I'll show Paul what to do. I know how to do this whole bold thing. We're lions, not lambs or whatever the statement might be. So what was it here that was inside of Paul? How do we reconcile that the guys that were with him sneaking out under darkness in the middle of the night? Sure, it maybe checks the box of maybe what a weakness might look like. We could do that. 
but man, it just doesn't seem courageous. What is going on there? Well, for Paul, and this, we're gonna build this out, and I'm not gonna answer this question until the very end. So if you check out, you're gonna miss out. Not only that, but I'll make fun of you if you check out all of a sudden. No, I won't, really. But for Paul, what it was was these infant, infant followers of Jesus he knew that in a lot of ways they were left alone. They were in a terrible position. When he got out of town, he was wondering, how in the world are they gonna be okay? And again, he was probably wondering in their minds, hey, Paul, how is this bold that you're sneaking away? We're not prepared for the trials that are about ready to come. We're not prepared for the realities that we're about ready to face. Paul, what in the world are you doing leaving? And I would say it this way, I think in a lot of ways what we'll see in this particular text as we kind of walk it through is Paul's broken heart and having to leave. When you look at verse 17, look down in 1 Corinthians 2, 17. Let me show you what I'm talking about. At the very beginning, as we're building this idea of boldness, he says, but since we were torn away from you, that word torn away has an image, and if you can imagine it, of a, and, and this is the way I think he's conjuring using family language, of a child taken away from a parent. In some way, Paul is looking at them, and it was, it was this unwilling separation. It's not something that he wanted to do. He was probably wondering in the back of his head even, and this is why I think he's even writing this. Do they feel like they're, they're orphaned? Do they feel like that in some way that there was an abandonment? That's kind of the way this, this kind of feels. It's just Paul's heartache at knowing that when he left that particular day, he knew that he was leaving a group of people that probably felt like, Paul, where, where, where are you going? We just got this thing going. He was wondering, do they feel orphaned? Do they feel abandoned? Well, we know in that particular moment, he left there and the rest of the book kind of goes through this idea that he went to Berea kind of in a similar way. He was, he was kind of booted out of town. He had to walk away from him. But he looked at the guys before he walked away and he said, listen to me, you and Silas get to stay here, Timothy, but I want you, Timothy, to come to me as soon as possible. I'm gonna go to Athens. Now, here's what we have to understand about that. Paul was at probably one of the more low moments of his life. The people in Thessalonica watching him walk away probably felt downtrodden. Timothy, Silas were probably feeling like, what in the world's going on? Paul is feeling beaten up. But the interesting part that we look here in verse 17 is, is that he sends them away, but then look at verse one of chapter three. Just go down a few verses. Is that therefore, when we could bear it no longer, though, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you. In other words, when Timothy showed up, he said, Timothy, you can't stay here. You gotta go. You can't be here, man. We gotta go back to that particular town. You gotta go love on those people. Timothy, I want you to be here desperately, but you gotta go. Now, to kind of establish what was going on in him at this particular time is that Paul was at probably one of the lowest moments of his life. He's been through now a couple of missionary journeys. Every particular town that he goes to, he gets kicked out in. So he was in Philippi, then he went to Thessalonica, then he went to Berea, then he went up to Athens. And in all of this journey of him taking it, he was just getting pummeled and beat up. He was tired. He was worn down. He had been working hard. 
But here he was, and this is what I mean, this starts to kind of convey this idea of what kind of boldness he had, is that in spite of where he was at that time, he looked at this group of people, and like a dad, he was hoping that they didn't doubt his love. In fact, this statement in 3, 1 through 2 just has this idea that I had to send him to you. He didn't want them to feel abandoned in any way. He knew they needed spiritual parenting. He knew kind of what we talk about with membership when we talk about the new covenant and why we are this way together is that this was a commitment to living together, of, of struggling together, of helping one another through all costs and in all ways. In other words, he was laying out in a lot of ways what the body of Christ is supposed to look like. Now, we're not perfect, and I've failed as a shepherd, and, and we're not the perfect church, so if you're a follower or not a follower of Jesus here going, oh, are you trying to claim that somehow you guys are this super loving group of people? No, we're not yet, but Jesus is changing us. But this is what the church is supposed to be like. And Paul is saying to Timothy, now I'm going to send you back. Look at verse 5. He said, for this reason, when I can bear it in the long run, in other words, I just had to send him. He said, I sent him to learn about your faith. Watch this statement, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now, here's what's going on inside of Paul's mind. Is that not only now does he wonder if they were questioning him, not only does he know that, as we find out earlier in chapter one, that all the people that were in their lives, the family, the friends, the social network, in many ways had abandoned them, he also knew that this tempter, that being Satan, was tempting them. In other words, it wasn't just a physical, emotional, or intellectual reality. It was a spiritual thing. He knew that they were being bombarded. Anytime churches faithfully live for Jesus Christ, Satan is going to bombard them. He knew they were first generation. And in the back of his head, if you can just imagine for a second, he was that dad that he talks about going, oh my gosh, how are my kiddos? Are they okay? Timothy, you gotta go to him. I know that I want you here right now, Timothy, but Timothy, you have to go. Now what's so crucial about this and understanding what he's talking about is that it, to send Timothy to this particular place where he was in Athens all the way to Thessalonica, it would have taken weeks and maybe even months for him to return. Paul wouldn't have known, right? He, he didn't live in the age of the internet. He didn't live in the age of the phone, you know, where he's calling Timothy along the way. Hey, bud, how's it going? You know, I, did you catch your flight from Athens down to Thessalonica? Did everything turn out okay? Hey, how are the people? Instead, he sent him off, and the image now is of Paul sending him away, wondering, what will he learn? What's going on? We know from other places like the book of Acts that it was heart-wrenching, wondering how they were doing. Even in some ways, when we look down at verse 5, look at the very end of it, that fear somehow that you'd been tempted, the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. There's a key word there. 
He was also wondering, are they legit? It was that idea in Matthew 13 of the, the sower that starts throwing the gospel into different places and some lands on the road and gets scooped up by these birds, which is in reference to demonic influence, or it lands into certain soil that was shallow and the sun beats down and they die, or it lands in, sh in soil with weeds and the, the cares of the world come around. But then there's this one soil that the seed lands into and he was wondering, oh my gosh, is that the, is that the soil that it's landed into or was this whole thing just in vain it has the idea and if you could just imagine the stark reality of a stillbirth were they born but were they born dead vain my wife and I have battled in and through just being able to have children. That's why God allowed us to, to, to adopt all of our kiddos, which we're super thankful for. But the very first funeral that I ever did was for a stillborn. I was so young, I didn't have a clue. And I get the phone call, can you come down to the hospital? My wife has to deliver her baby, but her baby's not alive. I remember walking in wondering, what in the world am I walking into? I came in and there was that little lifeless baby in the mom's arms as she just held him. In many ways, this is the lowness to which Paul is wondering, is it, are they alive? Is it a stillbirth or are these thriving kiddos? Now I bring all this up because sometimes I feel like we don't let Paul be human. Sometimes he's just this computer. He's just a robot that goes from town to town presenting the gospel, doing what he needs to do. No, he's human. And I think what is being conveyed here is just his intense and immense love that he has for this group of people. Are they okay? Well, in verse six, he says, but... Now, man, when you read the Bible many times through it, you're gonna see this statement in which Paul or one of the writers will say something, he'll go, but, and it's just loaded with this reality that things are about ready to turn. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul lays out all these realities of what it means to be somebody who is not in Christ, that is permanently separated from God, that is going to experience his wrath forever. I mean, just these realities of what he's laying out. But then he says in verse 4, but God. In other words, we go, yes. What, Paul? What's going on here? You can just tell there's relief. And he says in verse six, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly long to see us as we long to see you. In other words, Paul heard great news. If you can just imagine for a second, I'm sure he's just sitting there again. He's probably been waiting weeks or months and finally into town comes Timothy and Paul probably rushes out to him and just goes, so how are they? What's going on? What's happening? What's going on? And all of a sudden, Timothy must've looked back at him and said, Paul, Paul, ch chill. That, that's Greek. That's what that means. Relax. <laughs> Calm down. Paul, you wouldn't believe it. And then he just begins to express, Paul, they're alive. Paul, they're alive. 
Chapter one, chapter two is loaded with the reality of what it meant to be alive. Their faith is being heard all over Macedonia and Achaia. They're not just alive, they're alive in such a way that the whole area is beginning to look onto them and go, what in the world? And more and more people are coming to know Jesus Christ. And if you can just imagine as Paul heard this news, again, letting them be human, he would have been, I don't know, like Charles up here crying like a little baby a second ago. Why? Because Not because he's sad or mad, but because, yes, there is life. And I think he just cried. Yes. Look down in verse 7. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, and this is where I get his, his meaning, is we have been comforted. The idea is that my bowels are just now finally eased. Oh, God, thank you so much. But why are they thankful? We're thankful about you through your faith. You're alive. You're legit. They had all the signs of a healthy church. But what does this mean? Well, what this means when you look back into 2.13 that we talked about last week is that the word of God came and it was proclaimed across them. And Paul says that you, not in that moment, that you received it, you heard it, you embraced it, you believed it. And the idea was you people would never be the same again. You were exactly what Jenny talked about just a second ago, is that once we start to hear the truths of who God is and the spirit of God begins to come into us and we begin to absorb the word of God as we're hanging around the people of God, oh my gosh, we come to life. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we are alive. And for Timothy, he's saying there in this moment, Paul, they're alive, they're vibrant, they're healthy kids of the king. Everything about them says that they are truly good. It's the same thing that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1, 24, where he talks about the word of God being a seed. And when that word of God lands into the lives of God's people and they embrace it by faith, look at what he says to us in, in, in 1 Peter 1. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, why, Paul? Because in his great mercy, he has caused us, look at this, to be born again to a living hope. Just a little side note. Man, that's the first aspect of boldness, hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, the family DNA from God's word came into them and they were made alive. Look at verse six. In this you rejoice, though you have a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There's the second aspect of boldness, which I think is connected down when you get down to verse 13 of preparing your minds for action or gird up your loins. In other words, it's another sign of boldness. Verse seven so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, the obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In other words, you're different. Now, let me just say this to all of you who are in Christ. If you are in Jesus Christ and you have believed the message of the word of God and the truth of Jesus Christ and the good news found in it, you will never be the same. You've been made new. You 
now have the Holy Spirit alive in you, the same Holy Spirit, it says, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We are now different. Let me, let me talk to those of you that are maybe under the age of 30. I know in so many ways, maybe sometimes within the church, we convey that us old people have it figured out and we're the ones that are walking with Jesus, which I'll tell you this, there are probably as many old people as young people walking with Jesus. We just don't wanna say that. But you do not have to buy into the lie, those of you that are, that are underneath the age of 30, that somehow you can't do great things in the kingdom. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. The same Holy Spirit that transformed 120 people in Acts that then spread the gospel all over the world and within 300 years, all of the Roman Empire had bent their knee in many ways to King Jesus. That Holy Spirit is in you. Do not believe the lie that somehow that you do not have power within you to join Jesus in what he's doing in this world. You have the Holy Spirit. This idea though, and back to 1 Thessalonians 3, this idea of being destined for afflictions, you see that in like verse three, that was always an aspect of God's people. Paul was saying to them, look, I know I walked away from you and I know you guys started to go through things, but just understand that's part of our DNA. We experience heartache and difficulty. Over the last two and a half years, I've watched people shocked that somehow we as Christians are gonna go through difficult times. Let me just reaffirm to everybody, we are gonna go through difficult times. It doesn't matter if we have a Bill of Rights or not. Now, I'm thankful for the Bill of Rights. But this longing for somehow the, the rules and regulations and laws of our world to somehow make it easier for us as followers of Jesus, let me just repeat myself. We don't need those things to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. God's people have never needed the Bill of Rights to advance the gospel. The greatest moments in the church in the world did not have a Bill of Rights. They had a king, King Jesus, who sits on a throne and the Holy Spirit inside of the people. And regardless of what the government or anything around them was, God's people believed in it and they advanced the greatest message ever despite what was going on around them. This is our DNA. This is who we are. That's why we need to be fueled with hope and an understanding of our weakness. We were, his words there, destined for this. And I would even say this, it was a weakness because we are made to be people in dependence upon God. Look at verse four. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Paul says, remember I told you that was gonna happen. When I leave out of here, that was gonna happen and it has come to pass for you. And let me tell you what, I know you're alive because you've walked through it. Look at verse eight. You are standing fast in the Lord. In other words, what Paul was hearing in that moment was like a dad who the moment that child was born, he's wondering, do they have 10 fingers and 10 toes? When they spanked that child, do they spank kids anymore after, they, after the mom gives birth? They do? Do they? Just to make them cry and clear their I did not know they spanked them. Call CPS. <laughs> but that cry, like you're talking about, of a child. 
I've never been in a room when anybody had a child, because like I said, we haven't been able to have biological children. But I've had so many guys come out, and I'll never forget this one guy came out, and I'm like, he comes to me, and he's like, she's so beautiful. And I'm like, dude, get a grip. And he walks up to me, and then he says this. He goes, she cried. Okay. But to him, to hear that little girl cry meant what? She's alive. She's alive. Paul is just speaking over them going, you're alive. You're alive. And now in a very cool way, Paul, after he hugs Timothy, finding out this news, look at verse 19 and 20. He says, oh, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord at Jesus' coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul was this this beaming spiritual parent that's looking at his kids and he's seeing them alive and he's seeing them excel and become the people that God's telling them to be. He was just a proud papa in this particular moment in the good sense of the word, so excited. Even with like Old Testament undertones in this, like in uh, Proverbs of 17, 6, there's just this idea that the children being this crown, the grandchildren being a crown to grandparents. In other words, he's just going... Oh, you're my reward. It's real. Isn't any wonder in verse nine, look at this, he just starts to thank God. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before the Lord to hear that you're alive? Yes, verse 10, as we pray most earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. In other words, Paul longed to return to them. He longed to be family with them. He he longed to be their parent to allow them to grow. He wanted to see those first moments. He wanted to see the first moments of those first steps and the first words. He wanted to see the kids grow and develop, you know, and, and metaphorically get married. And he wants to see grandchildren. In other words, I want to be back with you because I want to see these things happen. Oh, he was just ecstatic that they were alive. Now, what in the world does this have to do with boldness? Well, let me go back to our little definition here. Let me kind of put this together for you. Here's Paul, highest of highs, after going through the lowest of lows. Let me show you what I mean. Let me start in 1 Peter to kind of let you know where I think we're talking about when we talk about boldness. Now, watch this. In 1 Peter 1.22, he says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to truth for a sincere brotherly love. Look what he says here. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The final aspect of boldness, there's hope, there's weakness, but what I wanna show you now is the reason this was so bold is because of how full of love it was. Now here's what I wanna add to it then. Boldness is spirit-inspired hope that fuels courage, rightly tempered by, uh, by weakness, and lovingly guided towards God and people. And let me say this. A person who acts bold, who has no hope, a person who acts bold, who has no weakness, and a person who acts bold but has no love, that is not biblical boldness. That is not And I would say this, over the last two and a half years, there have been many people that I've watched that I believe have been bold, but I have been many people that have stood up and have acted bold, but they lacked hope, they lacked weakness, and they lacked love. And that is not biblical boldness. 
And as a follower of Jesus to those that aren't a follower of Jesus, let me just say, not always does our family portray boldness as it's supposed to be done. In fact, I would say in many ways, and Cornerstone's not exempt, I'm just talking across the board. We have not demonstrated to you what boldness looks like as far as Jesus is concerned. But that's our heart. It's to let you see real boldness, real boldness. Now, now let me show you what I'm talking about. If you can just imagine. Remember, everybody remember like a three-legged stool? Everybody remember those? When I was a kid growing up, I'll never forget this. My, my grandparents had a gift underneath the, uh, tr- underneath the Christmas tree, and I thought it was a brand new baseball bat. And so I'm sitting there going, oh, shut up. I'm about ready to get a brand new baseball bat. I was excited. I would sit there and I would hit on it, you know, and I'd be like, I got a baseball bat. And I would just love it. And I opened it and it was a three-legged stool. What grandparent gives their, chi- their grandkid a three-legged stool? That's like opening up your stocking and there's fruit in it. You don't give fruit on Christmas. Santa Claus does candy like the Easter Bunny. But I took it out, and anything that happens within a three-legged stool is if you don't set it up right, it doesn't what? It doesn't stand. Now, boldness is like a three-legged stool, and this is what I mean. If you don't have hope, if you don't have love, if you don't have weakness all connected to it, then you don't have authentic boldness. Let me say that again. If you don't have these three key characteristics, you do not have biblical boldness. Now, let me show you what I mean. Let's go to, let me go to 1 Thessalonians 3.1, and let me kind of build out this idea of what I'm talking about in love. He said to them, verse one, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, in other words, I just knew we had to send him, we were willing to be left alone behind at Athens. Why is that love? One of the things we know about Paul at this particular moment was, like I said earlier, he was down, he was overwhelmed. Everything in him probably wanted to look at Timothy and say, Timothy, you, you can't go right now, man. I'm at one of the lowest moments. You need to stay here. I'm beaten up. I'm torn down. I'm overworked. I'm wondering how in the world I'm going to exist within the city of Athens. And not only that, imagine being left alone in a major city prior to the internet or even a phone all alone. I can imagine this moment, Paul, everything in him wanted to say, Timothy, don't go, stay. Now here's where I think this is so bold. Is out of great sacrificial love for the Thessalonians, he said to Timothy, I need you a lot here, but they need you more, go. That's bold. But not only was he being beaten up physically, emotionally, intellectually, psychologically, but we also learn in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, he was being bombarded daily by Satan. Let me just say this to everybody in here, including those of you that don't know Jesus. Satan is real. He is truly the roaring lion roaming around seeking whom he may devour. Satan is real. The angelic realm is real. Demons are real. And Paul was also facing this last aspect of it. He was being pummeled. He was being beat down on a regular basis in this way, being hindered by Satan. And I can just imagine thinking, Paul thinking, I am just fatigued and I need Timothy. 
I need my brother. I need the guy I love. I need my coworker. But he was more than just a friend. He was more than just a brother. He was more than just a coworker. In 1 Timothy 1, he was also this one who was his true child in faith. He, he considered him a son in Philippians 2. And look at this part. In 2, 19 through 20, there is no one like him. But what did Paul do? In boldness, he said, Timothy, go. Go. I don't know if there's a more bold act that he could have done. This is what what Christian was referencing to, to being a mom and to being a dad. See, I think, again, we tend to think boldness where we puff out our chest and think we're all that. No, it's not that at all. It looks so different within God's word. And many times throughout the Old Testament, you'll see this, that God will put his people at the greatest disadvantage that he can to where their chest is no longer puffed out, where they're no longer shouting like they want to, thinking they're all that in of themselves, so that all they have left to do is depend upon the God of the universe. And then what does God do? He shows up. Paul knew that God is faithful. God and Paul knew that his promise was worth it. Paul knew that he was weak and that he needed God to do it. But he also knew in that three-legged stool that boldness is now going and getting loving, even at great cost to himself. And so he boldly sent Timothy. He said, go. See, boldness is courage. But it's got to be lovingly guided towards people. Now, let me, let me walk this through just as I bring this to an end. If you remove the reality of hope in Christ, it will always lead to you trusting in yourself and not God. The moment you remove biblical hope, this idea of, of trusting in his faithfulness, you will start to trust in yourself and you will begin to think that somehow in there you know the good better than God does. And I would even say most people that are followers of Jesus are disappointed, they're, they're bitter, they're, they're desperate in many ways because they don't believe in God who provides the good that this world cannot provide, whether we're talking governments or families or jobs or financial systems. If you put your hope in those things, you will always be disappointed. But oh, the people that put their hope in God and Christ... We gotta have that leg. Weakness. The moment that you start to think that you don't need God and you overestimate yourself and you underestimate God, you may think you are bold and you may run up in front of people and you may yell and scream and act all tough. Oh, but you will be reminded that in and of yourselves, you can do nothing. And what about love? I think the best chapter to go to is chapter 13 to talk about this idea of what happens when you remove love in regard to boldness. Watch this. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels but have not love, and I would say this, the church has failed here a lot, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I wish I could bring in front of you what this was supposed to mean. It's just cling, clang, clang, tang. That's the church, if there isn't love. 
If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. But let me tell you this. When God's people embrace hope in Christ and Christ alone, when God's people embrace weakness knowing that our God is greater than all, when God's people choose to not love themselves anymore but begin to love others in a radical way, watch out because that kind of boldness is what turned the Roman Empire upside down. That's the boldness that I want in Cornerstone, a boldness that John 15, 13, no greater love is this than what a man laid down his life for his brothers and sisters. A boldness that says, yes, that I wanna love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, but I wanna love my neighbor as myself, that type of boldness. But I would even say this, I wanna see a boldness within Cornerstone that we don't complain and moan and talk about how terrible whatever political party or group of people or culture or schools or whatever that thing is out there that we rail and complain about, but instead we love our enemies. That's when the world gets turned upside down. You might do some incredible good. You might think of yourself as doing incredible things, but it will be pointless if we don't outlove those who oppose us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, our heart is, is that you will grow and under, to understand that this group of people, we will love people, even at great cost to ourselves, not perfectly, but we will be bold in that way to love. So what do we do about verse 10? Look in there. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. How was Paul bold? What if I told you this sentence is not about Paul, but about the believers in Thessalonica? The people that were bold in here were not Paul and Silas. The people that were bold in here are the brothers that immediately sent them away. They were probably wondering, oh my gosh, how are we gonna send Paul and Silas and Timothy away? But in this moment, they did it, trusting in the faithfulness of God and his good to do all things. They were probably wondering how in the world, after Paul and Silas and Timothy left, they were gonna be incredibly weak, but still in boldness, they sent them away. And in that moment, I think these leaders, men like Jason, who had even lost incredible amounts of money to protect Paul and all those guys, probably looked at Paul and said to him, Paul, we love you. Go. They were bold. It wasn't just Paul and Silas and Timothy. Thessalonians were bold. Now that's what I want for Cornerstone. This is the type of boldness I want. Not the boldness like the world talks about. Not this whole like lion sheep thing. I'm so tired of those t-shirts. If I see one more, I, I might literally start to cry. There's only one lion. His name is King Jesus. And you are sheep. Everybody head bowed and every eye closed. Nobody looking around. Nobody counts your neighbor. Does everybody understand me? If you so, raise your hand. We are sheep. 
But we have a great shepherd, the lion, who will defeat any wolf that dares to come in the midst of his people. We are kids of the king. And so now we can be people that grow our hope in King Jesus and grow our hope in when he returns in his reward. We can grow our understanding of our weakness because our God is not weak. He is eternally and omnipotently strong. And even at great cost to ourselves, even if it costs us our own lives, we can love. That's boldness. Now here's what I wanna do, I wanna connect it to the reality. I'm gonna bring somebody up here real quickly. And so, are you coming? Everybody welcome Laura Shear. You had Thomas up here preaching uh, a few weeks ago and you don't know this, but um, he's not even the best communicator in their family. And so Thomas was like, oh, would you like me to share this Sunday? And I go, well, why would I have you when I can have the best? And so, I'm gonna actually have her in their own personal testimony to what God did for them and the tribe that they were a part of, just land some of these things out in a real way from their perspective. So thank you. Yeah. And I'll stay right here. Thanks. Okay. Good morning. Um, I'm actually grateful to be up here <laughs> um, and just share with you some of the things that this series has been personally encouraging me with. Um, when it comes to biblical boldness and some of the context for why. Um, I think the main thing I'd like to focus on is just those three legs of the stool, um, love, hope, and weakness. Uh, for those of you who don't know our family, we're the Shears, and we spent 11 years in Indonesia. Um, when we left America, we left our family here, um, including our spiritual family. We left the life we knew. Um, and I would say that those three parts of the stool of boldness are what kept us there. It was love that compelled us to go. It was hope that sustained us, and it was weakness that grounded us. Um, we left our families. We suffered hardships. We encountered danger. We had some pretty scary experiences. Thomas almost died. <laughs> um, but again, love compelled us, hope sustained us, and weakness grounded us. Um, and in 2019, when the Nagi Church was born, God gave us back the incredible gift of family. Uh, these people became as dear to me as the family I had left behind. And when Paul talks about spiritual family, um, I very much resonate with the blessing that comes from being a part of God's family. Um, our expectation was to live with the Nagi people for the better part of our lives. So when Paul says um, in 1 Thessalonians 2.17, we were torn away from you. Um, we really resonate with that. Um, the night, I might cry on this part, so I'm just going to get that out there. Um, the night before we left the village to start heading back to America, a bunch of the Nagi women came up to our front porch just to sit with me. And my best friend, Anas, she also came up, but she, she would not come up to our front porch. In fact, she wouldn't even make eye contact with me. But her daughter, Nia, who at the time was about four and a half, and she was like my own daughter, she called me mother. 
she comes and she sits on my lap and she just looks up at me and she says, my mom has been crying all week because you're leaving. <laughs> um, at that moment, I looked down at Anas and she looked up at me and we locked eyes and we just sobbed. So I go down to her and we just held each other and we like ugly cried, you know, um, just holding each other. And I don't, I don't know how to explain it other, other than it was like a death. Um, here I was holding my best friend and thinking, I don't know if I'm gonna see you again this side of heaven. Um, I didn't have the words in the Nagi language to express my love for her, but in that moment, God gave me my tears as a visual expression of my deep love. So when Thomas and I hear Todd teach through this section um, in 1 Thessalonians about Paul's anguish and wondering how the church is doing, um, our hearts are definitely tugged. Um, and just this idea of biblical boldness, I feel like it's easy for me to look back on our time there and think it took boldness to be there. It took boldness to leave. It took boldness to stay. Um, but I think it's easy sometimes to look back and think like, I was bold, that's great, you know? But um, I think what God's really been doing in my heart, just as Todd and Christian have been sharing with us about biblical boldness and reshaping my thinking on it, um, I can't help but to apply it. Well, what about today? Like, how does it apply to my life today? So we're here now in Simi Valley. And as Thomas and I pray and seek the Lord for what's next, um, we both have a strong desire to continue to be a part of kingdom work. But here's the thing, being torn away from people you love and have invested so many years of your life into, it hurts really bad. Um, and so self-preservation is there in my ear saying, are you really sure you wanna do that again? <laughs> um, wouldn't it make more sense to pull back? Are you sure you wanna deeply love people again with the possibility that they can be torn away from you? Um, but I love how Todd has incorporated into this definition of biblical boldness those three legs, love, hope, and weakness. And so today, when I think about my love for Jesus and the treasure I've found in him, my love for people created in his image, that love continues to compel me. It compels me to continue to move towards people, to continue to invest in them and share that the greatest treasure I've found is in Jesus and that no pain or loss I've experienced is even to be compared with him. When I think about hope, the hope that Jesus Christ will build his church. He will keep his bride. He will come again and he will make all things right. That hope continues to sustain me. It sustains me to continue on in the work that God has prepared for me to walk in even when I'm weary. And when I think about my weakness, which is a lot, how desperate and needy I am for my savior constantly, how limited I am, but fighting to remember that my God is limitless, my weakness continues to ground me. So for me personally, this is how this teaching on biblical boldness is impacting me today, specifically in the area of continuing to invest in people's lives. 
but I've also been thinking through how do I apply this to every aspect and every area of my life? How does this idea of biblical boldness reshape how I handle different situations? So I've kind of just made it practical for myself, um, and I don't think I'm alone in this, but <laughs> um, sometimes in marriage, when things are difficult, um, boldness looks like forgiveness. Um, boldness looks like continuing to work on marriage, even when it's caused pain. Um, sometimes boldness, for me, means keeping my mouth shut. I'm learning that silence can be bold. Um, sometimes boldness is confession of sin and repentance, um, saying, Lord, by your grace, may I never do that again, and then finding accountability in someone else. That's bold. And I feel like I do just want to say maybe for someone in here, biblical boldness means for the first time bowing your knee to King Jesus today and confessing with your lips that he's Lord. That would be a really bold move today. So these are just some of the ways this series has been encouraging me and impacting me. Um, I truly have loved being here with you all and have loved boldly embracing you as my family. Thank you. All right, <clears throat> can everybody stand up? There's a prayer that Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13 that I wanna just pray over you as you leave today. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, which by the way, that is 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12, which you're gonna learn about as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. That's gonna be 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints is gonna be us talking about when King Jesus returns one day, starting in chapter four, verse 13. And so in the name of the Father, who gives us hope, who understands that we're weak, but he is strong, and also gives us love in the name of the Son who demonstrated that we can hope, that we can live in weakness, and though we are weak, we are actually strong, and that we can love like he loved. And in the name of the Holy Spirit who empowers us to understand, believe, and to live like we're called to in hope and weakness and love. Oh, Cornerstone, may you go in the boldness of King Jesus this week. May you be hopeful, may you be weak, but may you express that in immense love, which is powerful. And all God's people said, Amen. grace to all of you, we'll see you.